Amen. In 1899, a young 25-year-old Winston Churchill was serving in South Africa in the Second Boer War. He was captured by the enemy, and he was taken to a prison camp. After one month in captivity, he managed to escape. And over the next nine days, he traveled by foot across over 300 miles of South African terrain, meanwhile avoiding detection by the enemy, by natives, and by wild animals. He survived by drinking from puddles and eating whatever he could get his hands on. In 1961, during an expedition to Antarctica, a Soviet team ran into difficulties when the team doctor developed appendicitis. He was the only one there with any medical knowledge at all. And as his health deteriorated, Leonid Rogozov performed an appendectomy upon himself with no assistance. Many of you are probably aware in 2003, outdoorsman Aaron Ralston was hiking in Utah. He was out there, there doing some of that extreme remote hiking, and he dislodged a boulder, and it fell upon his right arm, trapping him. He was trapped there for five days and seven hours. Realizing that help would not come, he took his pocket knife and cut off his own arm. Then bleeding, dehydrated, tired, and hungry, he repelled down a 60-foot cliff and hiked eight miles before he was found and taken to medical care. You can read about his story in his book, aptly titled, between a rock and a hard place. Now, as I consider these examples and myriad others, one thing stands out to me. People will do extraordinary things to stay alive. But I wonder, even as we are willing to expend such effort and energy to stay alive, how often do we ask ourselves, what am I living for? What are you living for? Oftentimes we have a hard time answering that question because we're pulled in multiple directions. We have multiple competing desires that vie for the reason we're alive. James 1, 6-8 refers to this as double-mindedness. And he uses the metaphor of a wave tossed by the sea to underscore its inherent instability. When our enthusiasm for one thing is tempered into reserve and hesitation because of our enthusiasm for something else, we tend to lead distracted and unfocused lives. No wonder that Soren Kierkegaard once said that purity of heart is to will one thing. One thing. In our passage today, we see that if you had asked Paul, Paul, what are you living for? He would have had no hesitation in his answer. He knew what he was living for. 
In fact, we see in verse 21, Paul gives his bottom line understanding of the nature of reality. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now in the Greek, there's no verb. We, in our English, to live is Christ. In the Greek, it's just to live, Christ, and to die, gain. And in the Greek, when you say it, especially when you say it with speed, it produces an almost rhythmic effect. And so some commentators have noted how, in a sense, the rhythmic tone and beat of that phrase almost is like a heartbeat. And that isn't far too far off from the truth, is it? This is Paul's heartbeat. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But if you're like me, you oftentimes wonder, what does it mean to say to live is Christ? What does that even mean? Well, it is a shorthand summary of Paul's profound doctrine of the union with Christ. And I encourage you, go home, do a study of union with Christ. It is a profound doctrine. Uh, but there's the truth of the statement in an objective manner. In Colossians 3, 4, Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. So if you're a believer in Christ, in an objective manner, Christ is our life. But there's also a subjective element to the phrase because Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. So he's taken an objective reality and the truth of it has so gripped his heart and filled his mind that it's now become a subjective reality in his own daily experience. His life is characterized by his union with Christ. And Scripture being its own best interpreter... I think we see what Paul means when he says, for me to live is Christ. Best explained for us in Galatians 2.20. If you're familiar with that verse, Paul in Galatians 2.20 writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. In other words, in the light of Paul's deadness, and in the light of all that Christ has done for us, and in the light of how his very life is and future glory is bound up in Christ, so that when God looks on us, he doesn't just see us in our wickedness, he sees the very reflection of Jesus Christ. When we say that to live is Christ, that's a shorthand phrase for saying that we live because of Christ. We live in Christ. We live with Christ. We live to Christ. We live for Christ. Paul is so gripped by the glory and majesty of Jesus that Jesus Christ is his life. It is the singular driving focus of his existence to magnify the name of Jesus now, many of us may say, wait a minute. If we go through life with a singular vision, that's called tunnel vision. And that seems pretty narrow. But imagine, if you would, a scenario in which you can't see anything clearly at all unless you're looking through that lens. You see, if Christ and His glory becomes our driving focus, 
It does not obliterate every other consideration in our lives. You know what it does do? It gives everything else meaning, perspective, and orientation. Think of our solar system. What is the central object of our solar system? The sun. The sun's gravitational force gives structure to every celestial body in our solar system. Its light and its heat make life possible. So the sun being the central thing makes everything else in this solar system possible. So too it is with Paul. Paul understands that with Jesus being the central thing in life, all other priorities, all other values, all other pursuits, all other considerations are not obliterated, but rather they find their meaning and their significance and their proper orientation in light of this one great thing. Is your life frustrated? Do you feel like you churn and agitate and that you're getting nowhere? Could it be that what you need is to focus on that one great thing. Hymnist Helen Lemel in 1922 captured the truth well. We need one thing, and that will orient everything else in our life. And she captured that truth well in the words to her beloved hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. What's the refrain to that song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Next week, we're going to look at what it means for death to be our gain. But today, we're going to consider how is it that we can live as if Christ himself is our life. And the pursuit of his glory is the overarching, overriding theme of our life. Consider for yourself that you're in the place of one of Paul's captors. Okay? So Paul is your prisoner. What do you do with a man to whom you say, Paul, we're going to kill you. We hate you. We hate your message. We're going to kill you. And his response is, hallelujah, I get to go be with Jesus. Oh, well then, Paul, we're going to keep you alive. Glory be. More opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Oh, you don't understand, Paul. We're going to keep you alive, but we're going to torture you. I don't consider the sufferings of this age worth considering compared to the eternal weight of glory stored up for me. What do you do with someone whose perspective is that no matter what comes their way, they win? And brothers and sisters, beloved, that is what I want for you. You are going to face terrible, terrible circumstances. And what I want for you is a heart that beats for the glory of Christ in such a way that no matter what it is, you're able to say, I'm a winner. Because Jesus Christ will be glorified through this. That is what I want for you.
Now, I believe our passage today reveals three characteristics of what it looks like to live our life pursuing the glory and majesty of Christ. What are these three characteristics? First, we're going to see constant rejoicing in Christ. Second, complete relying, completely relying upon Christ. And third, courageously representing Christ. So, constantly rejoicing, completely relying, and courageously representing Christ. Look with me at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Okay, we saw last week that Paul is rejoicing because despite how things might have seemed that they would have turned out, the gospel has in fact advanced. And he says there are two reasons why it's advanced. One, he's been able to minister to the Praetorian Guard, which he otherwise wouldn't have had access to. And second, his example has inspired others to preach. So the gospel is being proclaimed, and so he rejoices. And we, were, we also mentioned that the verb rejoice is simply the verbal form of the noun joy. So to rejoice means to do or to act out joy. And again, we remember that joy is that optimistic, upbeat attitude that comes from our confidence in the sure word of God concerning the past, the present, and the future. So your joy is grounded upon knowing the end of the story. And so in the first part of verse 18, Paul is saying what he's doing now. I'm rejoicing because this is happening. But then at the last part of verse 18, it changes tense to the future tense. Yes, and I will rejoice. Future tense. Okay, so that's a, that's a literary technique in which he uses, he refers to the future to say that I'm rejoicing now on account of what I know is going to happen in the future. And not only am I rejoicing now on account of what will happen in the future, but when that future thing actually comes to pass and becomes a present reality, I'll be rejoicing at that time as well. Rejoicing, no matter what. Right now, as Paul is writing those words, his short-term future is uncertain. He's awaiting trial. He doesn't know what the outcome will be, but he knows the end of the story. And so he rejoices. When we talk about rejoicing in Christ, we sometimes feel kind of weird about it. I mean, it comes easy and it's natural to do at certain times when things are going well. But I would suggest to you that the exhortations and the commands and the examples we have of rejoicing in Christ consistently, it's a special grace for us. Because as we rejoice in our Lord, our hearts are encouraged, it lifts our spirits, and it orients our perspective it is hard to praise Jesus and long maintain a sour, grumpy, dour spirit. Rejoicing lifts the soul. And so when God commands you to rejoice, don't think of him and think, oh, he's this cruel taskmaster just wants me to do. He's wanting your joy. And you were made for joy. And it lifts the spirits. And brothers and sisters, I know some of you are hurting. Some of you are. 
your circumstances are terrible. You're not sitting in jail for the gospel, but other things in your life are going on. And in the midst of it, Paul would say to you, rejoice. Rejoice, especially when things are going bad. When you rejoice when things are going well, oh, it's cool. I mean, we're happy for you. I think of, you know, some hot young MBA grad, and he just lands right out of school a six-figure job in a plush corner office, and he's got a new Benz, and he's got a hot young girlfriend or whatever, and praise Jesus. Well, good for you, pal. And, and, and we're happy for the person when that happens, right? I mean, you know, someone graduates school, they're young, they have their life ahead, everything's going well, and you are happy for them. But their rejoicing in Jesus doesn't have the same mm, as if you're a young mother with two young children and you're looking out the window and you see a tree branch fall on your husband's head, cracking his skull like an egg, and he dies instantly. And in the midst of it, Christ is enough. Or maybe you get a terminal diagnosis in your spouse. Your spouse, even as you are bearing with that diagnosis, your spouse says, I can't handle it, and they leave. And you say, oh my God, Christ is everything. Or when you bury your precious young child, or you lose your everything in this world, and through your tears you say, your grace is sufficient for me. We're speechless. That is what makes Jesus look awesome. And that is what lets others around you know that Jesus is a balm for the hurting and the tired. Oh, I know that you're going through stuff. And it is hard to praise. I'm reminded in Habakkuk, when Habakkuk, the minor prophet, he's, he's so vexed and troubled by the iniquity of the people of Israel, and then he receives the word that I'm going to punish these people, I'm going to send the, ba the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And he just doesn't get it. Lord, these people, we, we're righteous compared to they. How, how can you punish your people with such vile people as they? And God speaks, don't worry about it. Theirs is coming too. And in the midst of all this quaking and uncertainty, Habakkuk responds in these powerful words. You've probably read them. You've probably heard them. But I invite you to write down Habakkuk 3, 16 to 19. Habakkuk says this, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. For those of you who are hurting, and for those of you who will endure hurt, remember, rejoice in the Lord in the midst of your sorrow, pain, and cloudy future. Jesus Christ, the shepherd of your soul, cares for you. Indeed, he is to be our only comfort in life and in death. In the midst of your sorrow, remember, rejoice in the Lord. It comforts your soul. It lifts your spirit. It orients your perspective. And it provides a remarkable witness to others of the greatness of your Savior, Jesus. But more than just rejoicing in the Lord, a life honoring Christ is one of reliance upon Christ. Complete reliance upon Christ. When we're in a tight spot, we rely on a number of things. Our wits, our experiences, our good looks, our charm, our network of friends, our money. We rely on any number of things. But when the chips are down and now all you have left is Christ, relying upon Him alone in those moments makes Him look great. Look with me at verse 19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Okay, first of all, notice how the Holy Spirit here is not referred to as the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, but he's not referred to in that way. He's referred to as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Anyone want to guess why? Because Paul is wanting us to understand and underscore that when the Holy Spirit ministers to us, he is very, really, truly mediating Christ to us. He comes to us on Christ's behalf, at Christ's behest, ministering all the benefits of Christ's love and commitment to us. So he uses the Spirit of Jesus Christ to remind us that when the Holy Spirit works, it truly, really is because he has come to be Christ to us. What does it mean for him to say that he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance? Well, the word translated deliverance there is the Greek word soteria. Soteria is sometimes translated deliverance, like here. Sometimes it's translated salvation. Sometimes it's translated vindication. And is Paul here saying, I know, I'm certain that I am going to get delivered in the sense that he's meaning I'm going to get out of jail. It's tempting to think that way because he goes on in verses 25 and 26 to express his confidence that he'll be reunited to them. But then again, in verse 20, we see that this soteria that he's going to receive is something that he's going to receive whether he lives or he dies. So what is he talking about? Well, he's actually quoting verbatim 
the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the, of the era of, the, of Jesus and the apostles. So as, a, as an aside, when you're wondering why, why do New Testament quotations of the Old Testament look different than when you actually go back and look at them, it's because they're quoting from the Greek translation and our Old Testament is based upon the Hebrew, which was found in like the year 500. So different, okay. He's quoting from the book of Job, the book of Job 13, actually. 13 verse 16, in which Job is again insisting that all the troubles that have come upon him have not come because he is a sinner, or that he's a vile, wretched man. And and he says, though the Lord slay me, yet I will appeal my case to him. And I know that this will turn out for my salvation. And so Paul seems to understand along with Job, that this is going to turn out ultimately for his vindication in the court of God, leading to his salvation. But I do believe also that the Holy Spirit inspired him wisely to use a word and to write a sentence in such a way that it underscores that he's a winner either way. If his trial goes well and he gets to be released, he's vindicated before the court. If his trial goes badly and he gets to go stand before Jesus, he's vindicated and he's a winner there too. He's a winner either way. But notice that he's not relying upon his own wits and power. He's relying upon the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and your prayers. In the Reformed world where we have such a clear understanding of the immutability and unchangeableness of God and his sovereignty and how he's decreed the end from the beginning, we sometimes have a hard time wrestling with where does prayer fit into things. But the Bible is clear. In James 5, we are told the prayer of a righteous man is powerful. Multiple times in the Bible, we hear Paul saying that he expects to be freed or he expects this to happen or that to happen because of the help he receives from their prayers. Which is, of course, keeping with the commands and teaching of God. So Paul is here revealing his reliance upon Christ in that he's trusting his word. How do I know he's trusting his word? Because he's quoting it. When you're reflecting upon Scripture and you're quoting Scripture and you're calling to mind God's faithfulness, that reflects reliance upon Him to get you through what you're going. When you express trust in the Holy Spirit to come alongside the prayers of the people of God, to empower them to bring about some sort of particular thing, you're trusting the means of God. And of course, When the people of God gather and pray, you are trusting the instruments of God. This says a lot about how we should be praying for each other. Once again, this is a little implicit plug for being at church and being transparent and vulnerable. The people of God's prayers are powerful 
and they are the means the Holy Spirit uses to come alongside. We learn about this in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit comes along our prayers and makes them powerful and effective. But our prayers matter. When the people of God gather and pray for you, things happen. Things do not remain unchanged. Our God is not a God of stone who neither sees nor hears nor feels. And so Paul is trusting the word of God, the means of God, the instruments of God. And he knows that that will get him released and vindicated. So open up. And don't take lightly the calling and the obligation and the invitation to pray. So we rely upon Christ. We rejoice in Christ. And lastly, we need to courageously represent Christ. Look at verses 20 to 21, and we see what he expects to happen. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is my eager expectation and hope. Okay, the word translated eager expectation is a word that means you are so intently focused on something that you are on the edge of your seat, leaning forward with full attention. And then it adds the word Hope. So it's a superlative on top of an already intense word. And it's conveying, this is my passion. And what is his passion? That he will not be ashamed. Specifically, that he will not be ashamed of Christ. Conversely, on the positive side, that now, as always, with full courage, Christ will be honored in my body. Courage. In other words, he wants to make sure that he has the wits and the wherewithal so that no matter what happens, Christ will look good by the way he represents him. No matter what happens. It takes courage to do that. Courage is required whenever there is a good that is separated from me by some perceived threat to my well-being or happiness. And in order to push through that perceived threat to my well-being or happiness, to get to the good or the right thing to do or whatever it is, I have to have courage. Courage. It took courage for Martin Luther to stand in front of the emperor and say, I will not recant. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It took courage for John Bunyan to sit in prison for 12 and a half years when all he would have had to say to get released is, yes, I will agree to stop preaching. That's it. It takes courage to to faithfully expose yourself to taunts, to ridicule, to mockery, to love someone who is very unlovely because we want to protect ourselves and their threats, their, their unlovability is a threat to my happiness. It takes courage. When Christian soldiers are about to deploy, and I would only say this to Christians, by the way, 
or when a chaplain was there and he's getting ready to go outside of the, the wire and out into the hostile territory. My parting admonition to this day is be safe, but not too safe. There is a way where you can be so fixated with safety that you are so risk-averse that you are a coward. And a coward will not stand and courageously now as always represent Christ well, whether by living or by dying. So, Christ looks glorious when you represent him faithfully in the face of a threat. What threat to your well-being or safety are you facing? I don't know. Maybe commitment to Christ and representing Him well means you need to change a lifestyle that will come at the taunts and chagrin of family or friends. Maybe it means that you need to be more generous with your money even though it will come at the expense of a little bit of vacation time. I once counseled a soldier who wouldn't invest $150 a month in their future because they didn't want to give up one weekend a month of partying. Maybe it's resisting the downward and self-protecting pull of bitterness and self-pity to faithfully seek out the other. I don't know. I don't know what you're facing. But whatever your circumstance is, there is likely a temptation to seek the path of least resistance, which is self-preservation, but in so doing, you will miss the opportunity to represent Christ well with full courage. So be courageous. And boys, men, your family needs you in particular. I have done so much counseling where I see that a problem in the house is the man does not have the courage morally, spiritually, to lead and guide his family. Honor Christ well and lead your family in the path of righteousness. Women, your calling as a wife is made so hard by the expectations and demands of this pagan age. Have the courage to do the right thing even though it feels like it is incredibly self-deprecating. Beloved, your calling as a Christian is hard. You live in the culture that tells you to get yours. But the calling of Christ is to lay down your arms and pursue the other. That voluntary laying down of arms, if I'm putting down my shield and my sword, do you see how I've just left myself open? That takes courage, not cowardliness. Have the courage to represent Christ well in your circumstance, whether by living or by dying. Rejoice, rely, and represent 
Let Christ be the driving focus in your life. Seek his magnification above all other things. And oh, you will experience the same freedom that Christ felt. And your opponents will have the same frustration that his jailers would have felt, knowing that no matter what they did, it was a win. And that's what I want for you. For you to look at every situation as an ultimate win. And therein, you will make Christ look great. Let's pray.